be seated. Good morning. We're uh, continuing on in our Advent series with uh, the five questions of Christmas. I'm making sure that's not going to feed back. Uh, And so the five questions of Christmas, so this is the third week. So the first week we asked the question, how will I know? Uh, Last week, Major Linda uh, brought the message, and the question was, how can this be? And today's message is entitled, and the question is, why has this happened to me? Now, if we're being honest, which I feel like church is the place to be honest, at one point or another in our lives, we have all asked the question, why has this happened to me? Lord, why me? What did I do wrong? What did I do? Why did I do Like, come on. Why, why did this happen to me, right? And interestingly, I, I really want to look just a little bit this morning uh, at the story of Elizabeth. Um, the, the couple of verses that was uh, read to us earlier is just a small snippet of the story of Elizabeth and what she was going through. And I believe that more than anyone... Elizabeth had the right to ask, why has this happened to me? Now, why, you ask? Good question. Let's go there. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6. I know it wasn't uh, verse 40 was read to you earlier, but we're going to start in 6. So strap in. It's going to take you a little while to get there. Um, So Luke, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and this is what we read from God's Word. Talking about Elizabeth and Zacharias. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if, if anyone talks about you behind, like behind your back, anyone says anything to you, that this is what they would say? Uh, isn't that nice? Like, this is Luke. So you've got to understand that Luke wasn't present uh, for... Uh, the, the Christmas narrative or even the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke was finding out all this stuff after the fact. He was paid by someone to go and to, uh, to go around to these different places, get the stories and to write them down. That's what Luke was, was done. He was after the stories of Christmas. And so he was going around and he asked someone about Elizabeth. Hey, tell me about Elizabeth. Tell me what she was like. I need to write it down. I need to record it uh, for, for my, my patron. Tell me what Elizabeth was like. And someone said to Luke that both her and her husband were both righteous before God. This was their reputation. Righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Wouldn't it be nice if if someone asked of you, or uh, someone came up to me and said, Hey, what's that Margie like? And I could say, she was righteous before God. She walked blamelessly in all of his commandments and all of his statutes. If someone came up to me and said, what's Major Linda like? And I could say she was blameless before God. Isn't that, isn't that sort of, this, I, I'm, I'm 
emphasizing this to sort of build up in your mind that Elizabeth was a good gal. She was a good lady. She was like Margie, just a good woman. I'm going to pick on you for a little bit. Just deal with it. She's humble. She'll, she can take it. See, here's the problem. I can say that of Margie, but if Margie came and was like to everyone, oh, that Captain Jonathan's such a wonderful person, I'd be like, yes, I am. <laughs> like, my head wouldn't take it. Margie's head can take it because she's humble. Verse 7, but. Don't you hate it when there are buts in Scripture? Like, this is all the good stuff. But. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and advanced, and both were advanced in years. In this society, being barren was shameful. Not having children was a sign that the Lord had abandoned you, that you were not in the favor of the Lord, that you had done something wrong, that you were sinful, that this was God's punishment. You were ostracized in society. And so, and as bad as this is, the blame is always placed on the woman for infertility in these days. Had nothing to do with the man. And so, with Elizabeth, she was going to take all of society's judgment for being barren. And so, perhaps Elizabeth could ask the question, why has this happened to me? She had a reputation that she was a woman who was righteous, who obeyed the statutes and the commands of the Lord, who was uh, did everything that she was supposed to do. A good, godly woman, married to a priest who was a good, godly man. And yet, their life wasn't fair because she hadn't had children. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about fair versus unfair. And we're going to talk a little bit, bit about just versus unjust. Now, fairness and justice are not equatable. They're not the same thing. I know that a lot of the times we use those two terms interchangeably, uh, but they're not. Fairness is not the same as justice. Fairness is the idea that everything is level. In fairness, uh, you might have heard the, the term level the playing field. All things being equal uh, is about fairness. Justice is about that there is a right way or a just way for the world to operate, and justice is bringing that into balance. So they're similar concepts, but they are different. Fairness is about things being uh, equal and fair and not having an, uh, an inherent vantage over something else. And justice is about the morality that comes from God and things being right. Does that sort of make uh, understand why those two things are different? So we've got fair versus unfair. We've got just versus unjust. And what I really do, like, do I have to explain to anyone that inherently the world is not fair? That the world that we live in is not a level, level playing field? Um, I usually know my audience, and I know not a lot of you play video games. So to, right now I'm talking to Kevin. It almost seems like the world is structured like a video game. That your starting region, wherever you are, really denotes how fair or unfair or how easy or hard the game is going to be. If you're born in a first world country, your life is going to be inherently easier than if you were born in a developing or third world country. Um, and and this, is, this is just recently how 
we figured this out. Um, uh, on Halloween, my wife's stone, uh, fo phone was stolen. You know, some of you remember this. Um, it was stolen. I put a Facebook post on her. Wife's fine, uh, phone stolen. And I had lots of people, people commenting. And uh, someone wrote back and said, hey, what's your PayPal? I want to contribute $20 to the Buy Nikki a New Phone Fund. And I got a couple of people give me money, and I got some money in my PayPal to help buy Nikki a new phone. Wonderful, great. It was, it was a blessing. At the same time, about a week later, I had a friend do an online fundraiser for Puerto Rico. Uh, because the people in Puerto Rico were without, at that time, were without food, water, power, shelter. First world country, America, privilege, I'm upset because my wife's phone got stolen and I have to shell out the $200 deduct deductible for a new one. People in Puerto Rico, no food, shelter, power. The, life, the world inherently as it's structured is not fair. This country is incredibly blessed on a daily basis by uh, the comfort that we enjoy. Uh, most of us, again, e even within this uh, country that we live in, it's, it's wildly imbalanced as to who has the most money and those who are in poverty can't get out of poverty and those who are in debt can't get out of debt and those who are homeless can't get into homes. And uh, so, so there is the, so that struggle even within this country. But when you look at the world, being in a first world predominantly white country means that you've started life the right way. That's, that's going to give you all of the advantages you need. If you were living in Africa or if you were living in some of the island countries where they're not developed, where they don't have that uh, starting point, uh, life there is not fair and you cannot get off the ground. In some African countries, the starting tax rate for people, individuals, if you earn $50 a month, you get taxed 34%. You know why they tax people at that higher rate in those countries? To pay off the loans that America has given them to develop their country. And so because that's the starting tax rate for corporations, the tax rates are even higher. And so people can't build factories and they can't build infrastructure and they can't get ahead because the world is inherently unfair. That is the point I'm trying to make. Have we gotten that point? That the world is unfair. But being unfair is not the same as being a world that is also suffering from injustice. And that's the, the, how I want to really draw this, these two things and, and, and separate them because too often we equate fairness and justice and think they're the same thing, but they're not. Uh, and at the same time as you've got an unfair or an unlevel playing field, you also have injustice in the world where you have people being sold into slavery. You've got people living on less than a dollar a day uh, as their income and they can't buy food. And so they have to sell their family into indentured servitude in order to put food on the table. But then the tax rate on the amount of money that they borrow is so high that they can never get those people back out of slavery. That happens in India a lot where people in India, they have children and they have to sell their children or loan their children to people to get a loan to feed the children, but then they can never make back the money to repay it. Like, this happens in this world. So there is a difference between things being fair and things being unjust. The world is both unfair and unjust. Amen? And if we're... So the world is not fair, but also justice is not universal. 
We don't live in a universally just world. And here's what's really interesting. We don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know why underdeveloped countries can't, can't catch up. We don't know why. And when you don't know why, you also don't know what to do. Which is another issue. That's a whole other sermon that we don't have time for. But if you don't know the reason for something, oftentimes you don't know how to help. So the world is unjust, the world is unfair, and we don't know why. Let's be honest, a lot of the times we ask why God just doesn't fix it. Like, have you ever had that conversation with God? Like, if you haven't, then I think you're a liar because I think everyone's had this conversation with God. If you've seen something that is unfair or you've seen something that's unjust, uh, if you're a Christian, one of your first reactions would be, God, why do you let this happen? Right? In the Bible, there's a story of a guy named Job. Not really a Christmas sermon, but hey, I've got the microphone and you don't, so it means I get to talk and you get to listen. There's a guy called Job. Um, interestingly, the story of Job is one of the oldest stories in the world. Uh, it, even though it comes place later on in the Bible chronologically, the way our Bibles are structured, it's actually believed to be older than the book of Genesis. That the story of Job was an oral tradition that was passed down and then later on written down, but it's one of the oldest stories. Uh, and the story of Job opens up like this. There's a guy, his name is Job. Job is a righteous man, does everything that God wants him to do, and has been blessed accordingly. He's got a large family, he's got crops, he's got uh, a farm, he's got all the, the, the goats and cattle that he wants. Uh, he is a prosperous man by all accounts, and it even says that he makes sacrifices for his children uh, that's how wealthy he was, that not only could he sacrifice for his own sins, he was then able to sacrifice uh, for the sins of his children. If you've ever been to a country where agriculture and livestock are the predominant uh, way of making money or gaining money, and that is uh, cattle and livestock is the currency, you know being able to sacrifice not just for yourself, but then also for your like 20 odd children, he rich, like he been blessed. That's Job. And then <coughs> scripture says that Satan comes to God and says, hey, God, look at Job. He only loves you because you've blessed him. If you were to take everything away from him, he would curse your name. And God's like, I know everything and I know that's not going to happen. So do everything that you can to him except take his life. And so in a short period of time, all of Job's cattle died. All of his livestock, dead. All of his grain stocks, gone. All of his children, dead. All of his children, dead. He gets leprosy and his wife leaves him. After spending a good couple of chapters nagging him. So I don't know which was worse at that point. Just saying. Like, a couple, couple of chapters of this, maybe the wife leaving was a blessing. No, no, no. <coughs> I really wish this wasn't live streaming because that joke's getting back to Nikki. Anyway, his, in all accounts, his life's completely in ruin. He has three friends that come up to him and start giving him bad advice. Do you ever have those friends? Like the ones that you just want to turn to them and be like, just stop talking. Like you're not helping. I'm not going to do that. Just stop talking. I've, we've all met these people. And he's in that, Job is in that state. And you know what? He doesn't 
doesn't curse God. He questions God. He sends some questions. He's like, God, why, why did you let this happen? Um, and, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's, uh, you have to get all the way to Job. I think it's chapter 38, 39, and 40, where God actually answers his questions. Um, we serve a God who, who doesn't just leave you hanging when you ask him questions. He actually answers the questions. Uh, not Perhaps with Job, it wasn't in the way that Job quite wanted the questions answered. Job's like, why did you let this happen? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Are you even a powerful God? And God uh, says he answers Job out of the whirlwind. So I want you to imagine a uh, whirlwind coming out, a giant voice saying, and, and this is what the voice says, gird yourself like a man. I will ask you questions and you will answer. Okay. If an angel of the Lord appears to you, you're terrified. If God himself appears to you in a cacophony of wind and sound and noise and then says, gird your loins, which is the, uh, the ancient equivalent of dress up like a football player. In other words, put on your armor, put on your pads, put on your loins, your cup. Like, that's what he's saying. That's, it. that's in scripture. I'm not making that up. I'm not being crass. When it says, gird your loins like a man, that's what he's referring to. And God comes to him and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Oh God, that's an excellent question. I hadn't been born yet. Where were you when I told the sea that you could go to here, but you're not allowed to go any further because that's where the beach is going to be? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens in the expanse of the sky? And God goes on for three chapters saying to Job, where were you when I, where were you when I, where were you when I? And at the end of it, Job said, God, you're right. I'm a man, you're God. And even though all of these horrible things have happened to me, I still have to praise and honor your name. And in the end of the story, Job doesn't curse God. Job blesses God's name, even though all of his life has been destroyed. And Job ends with everything that was taken away from him, him being restored. So Job gets a crop again. He gets cattle again. He has more children. He gets a better wife, one that doesn't nag. I just made that bit up. I don't know. I can't tell you if she nagged or not. Ask Job. Ask Job if life is fair. I'm fairly certain. Fairly certain that Job would say, no, life isn't fair. If you fast forward the, the narrative of Scripture a little bit more past Job, uh, you get to the kingdom of Israel. Uh, in Israel, there was David. He set up this kingdom. He was the first king over a, a united Israel. And he set everything up. He uh, protected the borders. He fought. He got everything squared away. He got all of the, 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 the lumber and all of the stone to build the temple of God. He didn't get to build it himself, but he got everything prepared. He set up peace treaties with the lands around him. And, and suddenly Israel was this, uh, in and of itself, a functioning city and kingdom under David. And he was remembered as the greatest king of Israel. That's why Jesus is referred to as the son of David. So because David is such a high mind, in the, even in today, the, uh, the eyes of those who are Jewish. Um, so David did all these things. He set everything up. And his son Solomon, we, we, we know Solomon, right? Solomon comes in and takes over. Solomon, uh, God came to Solomon in a dream and said, uh, because of the faithfulness of your father David, I'm going to give you one request. You ask me one thing and I will grant it to you. It doesn't matter what it is, I will grant you one thing. And Solomon says to God, I want wisdom in order to properly judge your people. Now, that's important because judging 
is related to justice. Do you agree? That if you were to go to a court of law, the judge would be responsible for dealing out justice, right? Does that, does that make sense? That, that sort of connection there, that, that's important for a little bit later in the story. Uh, so I need you to get that connection, that justice and judgment are intertwined, that without judgment there can't be justice. Uh, so Solomon asks for uh, a wisdom that he may correctly judge God's people, and God says to him, because you have asked for this, uh, you haven't asked for riches, and you haven't asked for long life, and you haven't asked for health and prosperity, I'm going to give you all of those things, and I'm going to give you wisdom to correctly judge my people. Uh, Solomon then spends a good portion of his young life um, building, and he builds the temple of the Lord, took him seven years to complete that, then he builds his own uh, house and palace, which took him 13 years, That's a, let's not figure out why, one's twice as big as the other, um, and so he, he spends all his time building. Um, it's in that sort of time period that it's believed that uh, he wrote uh, uh, things like the, the Proverbs and, and some of the Psalms that he wrote, some of his wisdom literature. In his early life, he, it was believed that's when he wrote Song of Solomon when he was a young man, because um, those are just like love stories. Uh, and then uh, when he was wise and, and doing what he was supposed to do, he wrote Proverbs, and then later on in his life he wrote Ecclesiastes, and that's a whole other like, arc that we don't have time for. But... Towards the end of his reign, things went off the rail for Solomon. Uh, scripture says that he had um, 600 wives and 300 concubines. Now, some of those were political marriages. I don't know what you do with more than one wife, because one wife is enough for me. Because I don't want two people nagging at me constantly. I figure I'm already in with the nagging jokes. I might as well go all the way. I'm already in trouble. Whatever, the Seahawks are playing. I can sleep on the couch, it's not a problem. Um, he gets 600 wives, 300 concubines. His life goes off the rails. And what's interesting is that one of the kingdoms next door is the kingdom of Sheba, and there is a queen of Sheba. Have you heard of her? She's a real character. She's from the scriptures. The queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon. Uh, and she says, I had to come and visit you because I've heard all these things. I've heard that you are a, a king and you do this and you do that and you've got great wealth. And I've seen with all my eyes that you are uh, doing all these amazing things and you've built all these things and you've got so much money and you're so wealthy. And, and you can find this in case you wonder if I'm making this story up. I'm not. It's found in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 uh, is the story of the Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings chapter 10. Uh, and the Queen of Sheba comes to him. And she says something very interesting. She says, surely God has made you king to uphold justice and righteousness. She did not say, you as king are upholding justice and righteousness. In a very ancient way of slighting Solomon, she says, God has made you king to do this, but I don't see you doing it. I don't see you upholding justice and righteousness. Now remember, Solomon asked for wisdom so that he could correctly and rightly judge the people of God. And the Queen of Sheba comes in as an outside set of eyes. And it's amazing throughout Scripture the amount of times that God uses either non-Christians or non-Jews to judge his people. That he uses people who are not Jews in the Old Testament to come in and make a judgment or a pronunciation on the people of Israel. Heck, he uses, uh, he uses a witch earlier on in this story 
to judge the king, to come in and, and, and show the king up. In the book of Numbers, he uses a donkey. Just saying, if God can use a donkey, he can use us. Because we're not as stubborn. I mean, we're more stubborn. Wait, what? Something. Anyway, the Queen of Sheba. Surely God has made you king to uphold justice and righteousness. That's why Jesus was so important, because he was finally a king that would uphold justice and righteousness. And so you get back to Elizabeth. You get back to the fact that her life isn't fair. You get back to the, the fact that the Old Testament scriptures consistently equate obedience with fertility and productivity and blessing. And, and in case you, you don't believe me, here we go. Psalm 127, verse 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, who shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Which seems oddly graphic to me. Children are like arrows in your quiver. May your quiver be full. That's just weird. No? You don't find that weird? I found that weird. Alright, whatever. I found it weird. Next time you go to a child's birthday party, may your quiver be full. Right? It's weird. I'm just saying. It's weird. In the Old Testament, again and again and again and again, being a righteous person is equated with fertility. Being an obedient person and following God's will for your life is equated with fertility. And Elizabeth, who is known throughout the lands, apparently, of being a righteous person, enough so that Luke can go around after the fact and ask people, and those people say, yes, she's a righteous woman, she is infertile. And she's been infertile her entire life, and she is an elderly lady. But then something happens, which is really kind of interesting. Have you ever noticed that why has this happened to me can actually be asked both ways? When something, wrong go, when something goes wrong, yeah, you ask, God, why has this happened to me? When a blessing comes your way, you can ask the same question. Oh. Well, why has this happened to me? I like it, but I don't... Did I do something to deserve this? I don't know. It's like when, when Kathy brings me my coffee every Sunday morning. Oh, I don't know why you... I don't know why, but you do, and I love you for it. Why has this happened to me? Now, pulling through the story of Elizabeth, I found kind of five things that we're going to very quickly go through. And I, pr I promise, you know, we'll be ending, ending on time. But there are five things that I just want to briefly go over here with the story of Elizabeth. And what's important about the story of, and, and how the story of uh, Job and Solomon equate to Elizabeth, is that it inherently sets up this, that the world, first of all, is not fair. It was not fair to Job. The world is inherently unjust. And even though God appointed Solomon to be the giver of justice, he used that gift to amass his own wealth and ended up visibly not upholding justice and righteousness. Jesus did not come to make the world fair. 
Jesus came to make the world just. Jesus himself said that there's always going to be poor amongst you. Pay heed to me while you have time. You can get so busy with trying to make the world fair that you ignore making the world just. If you were to ask me in my humble opinion, I would say that justice matters more than fairness every time. That we always need to tend towards justice. So here, here are some of the interesting things about Elizabeth and the blessings that she had after God blessed her with a child. And so rather than asking, and, and all of these questions, all of these, these five things, in the first half of the story, you can almost hear Elizabeth saying, God, why has this happened to me? And in the second half of the story, you can imagine her saying, oh Lord, how have you blessed me? How has this happened to me? So Elizabeth had the blessing of answered prayer. A child was the one thing that could end her lifelong disappointment. She was disappointed with the fact that she was barren. She was disappointed in the fact that she was infertile. And then she became pregnant. Elizabeth had the blessing of exoneration. With each passing day of her pregnancy, God's grace removed her shame and she never looked back. It was shameful to be barren. And you can feel that, the weight of that question in the first half of the story. God, why am I shamed like this? Why have you done this to me? In the second half of her story, you feel that, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Elizabeth had the blessing of God's presence. The times of pain and trial can be isolating and overwhelming, but during the years of infertility and shame, Elizabeth and Zechariah were not alone. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah. We remember this from the first week. He became mute for nine months, which was another blessing on Elizabeth, I'm sure. Um, um, but now that feeling, rather than God abandoning them because they were infertile, now they've got the feeling, I'm going to have a baby. God is finally, again, his presence is with us. So Elizabeth had the blessing of God's presence. Elizabeth had the blessing of a heavenly vision. When Mary arrived, Elizabeth felt, in pre uh, felt the presence of God and her unborn son leaped for joy through their two miracle babies. Elizabeth and Mary experienced God in a new and profound way. I don't know what that would have felt. I've never been pregnant, obviously. <laughs> I have heard from expectant mothers that it's kind of a weird feeling when the baby shifts in the womb. Am I right with that? that it, not, not bad, just weird, right? When the first time it ever happened to you, like, why are you moving by yourself? Like, normally you have to jiggle a little for my tummy to, to move. But what would it have been like for your baby to leap with joy? Not just roll over. I don't know. I just, I just got this really weird, like, you get one of those 3D sonogram things of the baby, like with some little chuckers. This has gone off the rails. Oh, good Lord. Elizabeth had the blessing of a new life. John's birth changed everything. It changed Elizabeth's priorities, interactions, and routines. And they now revolved around the small, helpless infant who woke her up in the middle of the night. 
you know what the word, what the name John means? And by extinction, Jonathan means gift of God. In Hebrew, Jonathan means gift of God. John was God's gift to Elizabeth. See, nowhere in Scripture does it say that you can't go before the almighty God of the universe and say, God, why has this happened to me? Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you're not allowed to do that. In fact, the Psalms are full of it. The Psalms are full of people who don't understand, who don't know, going before the almighty God of the universe and saying, why? The important bit is that you listen when God talks to you. You ask why, but then you listen to what God says. Elizabeth, her entire life, God, why am I barren? Why am I cursed? Why am I shamed? Why am I infertile? Why can't I be normal? Why can't I be like everyone else? Why, why, why? And then God comes to her in her old age, which for her had to feel like the, uh, the plot had already ended, right? This had to feel like the last three seconds of a game and you're down in the scoreboard and there's no way you can possibly win. It has to be the end. And then God comes to her and says, no, overtime because I'm God. And she becomes pregnant. And her life, through the blessing of a new life, everything changes. Now, maybe nine, nine ten months down the track, you've got a new baby. She's, the baby starts crying in the middle of the night. You're like, Oh God, why have you done this to me? Maybe her life questions change a little bit at the end, we don't know. But for Elizabeth and Zechariah, nothing was ever the same again. Instead of being that old married couple, they were parents. Instead of being quiet, anonymous believers, they were active participants in God's great redemptive story. Because John the Baptist, when he's baptizing people, sees Jesus coming and points to him and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the same John. John became the person who at the age of 30 baptized Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that blessing? John the Baptist was called by Jesus the greatest man to ever live. And while John the Baptist ended up being beheaded because he didn't back down from the message that God had given him, he has that history of being called the greatest man who ever lived. The biggest change, however, I believe, was to their inward condition, not their outward circumstances. When you are faithful to God and you listen to his answers and questions, you are blessed. But I don't believe that you are unchanged. I believe that when you have a full and genuine encounter with our God, you can't walk away unchanged. And if you walk away unchanged, maybe it wasn't a real and faithful encounter with our God. Now that sounds a little judgy, and that's okay. I'm going to leave you with that little judgment right there. Because I, I, that's something that you need to wrestle with in your heart. But I do not believe that anyone can meet the sovereign God of the universe and be unchanged. It just doesn't, 
doesn't sit with me. Elizabeth underwent a revolution of perspective, priority, and purpose that only God's grace could bring. And I'm going to end with actually uh, this Bible verse from James. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Other translations will say perseverance. And that, and let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you undergo trials, it's not for nothing. It's so that God can build in you steadfastness, perseverance. Maybe you've heard the expression, God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, that's crap. <laughs> God will never give you more than he can handle. The difference is under your strength, you will fail and fail spectacularly. In God's strength, he will succeed through you if you open your heart to him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to come together in your name and talk more about your words and your work. I thank you, Lord, for the life of Elizabeth. The fact that she was not afraid to ask some of the most powerful and potent life questions. Why has this happened to me? But Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving God who fulfills your word and your promises to us. We thank you that through the life of John the Baptist, Elizabeth was blessed and the world was blessed and that your son Jesus Christ was blessed through John's ministry. We thank you, Lord. And we thank you for being a God who cares about justice, who sent your son Jesus so that justice could be handed out to the world. And that rather us facing the penalty for our sin, which is death, that that penalty was put on Christ Jesus on the cross and he died the death that we should have. We thank you, Lord, for this Advent season where we can reflect on these stories of scriptures. We love you and we give you praise today. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to